The first reading is from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll move to verse 13 to 15. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Uh, we're now going to go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 36. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it is getting late. Send the crowds away so so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only here have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them over to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Hi, everyone. 
Uh, tonight we're looking at uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we'll be making a glancing reference to the walking on water, but it'll be really helpful if you leave your Bibles open to those stories as we look at it together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, please be generous and gracious to us now. Please have your spirit deeply at work in us that we might understand what these passages mean and that we might see areas in our lives where we need to change and that you might, by your power and grace, change us to be more like Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1993, the African country of Sudan was gripped by civil war and famine. There were millions of people who were displaced. There were millions of people who were without food. And Kevin Carter was a photojournalist who was covering the effects of the famine. And as a photojournalist, Kevin's job was to take photos of suffering, was to take photos of what was happening so that the world might have a window into Sudan, so that the world might actually see uh, what was going on. He ended up taking a photo that became the public face of the famine in the Sudan. You may have seen it. Uh, he took a photo of a child who had collapsed from hunger. But what made the image just so powerful was behind the child was a vulture, just waiting for the child to die so that the vulture could eat. The photo was first printed in the New York Times in March 1993. Now, this is before social media, right? This photo went viral. It got picked up and repeated in newspaper after newspaper after newspaper all around the globe. And the following year, it won the Pulitzer Prize for the best feature photo. It was an incredibly emotional, powerful photo. I'm not deliberately, I'm deliberately not showing it to you because it's the kind of thing that if you see it, it's actually all you will remember of tonight. It's very powerful. And everywhere it was printed, in every newspaper, people contacted the paper to ask one question. And that question is, what happened next? What did your photographer do after he took that photo? Uh, well, what did Kevin do next? Well, he chased the vulture away, uh, but there was little else he could actually do. He's just one man with a camera in a country where millions of people are without food. There's actually very little he could do. He could do small things like chase away vultures and take photos so that the world could see what was happening, but he actually couldn't do anything to solve the big problem. He simply did not have the personal resources, he did not have the skills, he did not have the power, he did not have the finance to actually meet the needs that he could see. Uh, for me, as a Christian, that raises some questions. For me, it raises the question of how do you think Jesus wants his followers to react when they come face to face with needs that our personal resources and power can't actually meet? Or whether it's big global issues like famine or whether it's kind of geographically smaller issues like wanting to see unsaved friends come to Jesus, your Christian life will constantly put you in connection with needs that totally and humbly outstrip your personal capacity, your skills, your resources, that you will feel like Kevin Carter in the Sudan, unable to do something, powerless, too small to actually to meet and change the needs that you see. As a Christian, how does Jesus want you to respond? 
to that. Well, in the passage uh, that we read, uh, both Jesus and the disciples come face to face with large-scale neediness and they respond very, very differently. Now, we get to see how Jesus responds. We also get to see how he expects his followers to respond. The first thing that happens in this story is that Jesus responds to this big, massive, needy crowd from verse 13 down to 15. And as this story unfolds, it's actually really helpful for us to realise that Jesus begins this story in a place of grief and pain, because if you were here last week, John the Baptist has just been executed. And John the Baptist's disciples have just come to Jesus and they've just told Jesus what has happened. And Jesus responds in verse 13. So in your Bibles, verse 13. When Jesus heard what happened, in other words, when Jesus heard about the execution of John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So, so Jesus hears about the execution of John the Baptist and he goes to a solitary place, which is what he often does to pray. This is a time of deep and personal pain for Jesus. Somebody that Jesus cares about has been brutally and unfairly executed and Jesus goes off to find a solitary place to pray and process and to grieve the death and murder of John. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't actually get to do it, does he? Because picture this, as as Jesus is travelling across the lake to get to a solitary place of prayer... There's this needy and massive crowd kind of running along the foreshore trying to catch up with him because they can see him. Look at verse 13 and reading into verse 14. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, look at this, here comes Jesus' response to large-scale neediness. He had compassion on them. Jesus is trying to get to a solitary place in response to the execution of his friend. But when he gets there, he's met by this massive, needy group of people wanting him. I'm sure you have some small sense of what that's like, to desperately want some time for yourself, but to have needy people cut in on that. Uh, I'm a parent, so that's kind of my mode of operation most days today. Uh, you know, I have kids hanging off me uh, all day, and at some point you just feel like saying, guys, can you just give me 15 minutes? I just want a cup of tea. Maddie Jay's about to hand out a rose. I want to see what happens. Can you just give me 15 minutes of peace for me? Uh, that's actually nothing at all compared to what Jesus is going through. John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jesus wants to go to a solitary place after the brutal murder of his friend to grieve and to, in some ways to actually prepare himself for a similar fate by the end of the gospel. But he's followed by this pack of needy people looking for healing and looking for help. And instead of saying, guys, John the Baptist has just been killed. Can you just give me 15 minutes, please? He doesn't say that. Instead, he's moved with compassion and he spends his time healing the sick and fixing the broken. Jesus sees the need of the crowd and he's moved with compassion and he welcomes the crowd in verse 13 onwards. That's how Jesus responds to the needy crowd. Uh, But next, it's the disciples because the next thing that happens in the story is the disciples see a different need in the crowd. They see that the crowd needs food. 
come to the end of the day, there's thousands of people. The disciples realise they have no food. They're away from their homes. And so verse 15, look at down at verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him, that's Jesus, and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowd away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves food. So the disciples, they see the need, the crowd needs food, but they send the crowds away. Uh, Now, to be clear, it's not because the disciples don't care. It's because they can't actually do anything. They can't actually feed the crowd. They can't do anything about the hunger. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Now, when they answer by saying we've only got a couple of loaves and a few fish, that's not them saying, okay, Jesus, we'll give them something to eat. Here's what we've got, a couple of fish and a few bits of bread. Let's start with that. No, that's, that's them giving Jesus the reason as to why Jesus needs to send them away. That's them saying to Jesus, no, we can't actually give them something to eat. We only have this tiny amount of food and there's thousands of people. Send them away to get some food because we cannot feed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and a few buns. They're feeling, I suspect, a little bit like Kevin Carter, that photojournalist who saw the massive need, but he also felt there's really very little he could do about it apart from take a few photos and chase away a few birds. So when Jesus says, you feed the crowd, and they say, we only have five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, that's their way of saying to Jesus, no, we can't. You need to send them away. But Jesus doesn't let them. And Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, you're right, actually, you don't have enough. Uh, Let's send them away. Look at what he does in verse 18 to 21. Jesus actually feeds the crowd using the disciples. Verse 18 Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus takes what little they have, he gives thanks for what little they have, he breaks what little they have, and then he gives what little they have back to the disciples. The disciples hand it out to the crowd, but miraculously it multiplies so that what little they had actually ends up being large enough to feed thousands of people and still have baskets left over. Now let's just pause the story there for a moment. What does that remind you of? This is a group of Jewish people with no food in a remote place and Jesus miraculously feeds them. What does that sound like? Uh, if, you, if you want a little bit of help, in verse 15, the word translated remote place, it's actually the word wilderness or desert. So verse 15 says, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, literally wilderness. Send the people away. So there's a large crowd of Israelites with no food, in the wilderness, and Jesus miraculously feeds them. It sounds like Moses and the Exodus, doesn't it? The first Bible reading that we had. 
When Moses led Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, they had no food and Moses miraculously feeds them in the desert. And in the same way, Jesus miraculously feeds these Israelites in the wilderness. Matthew is deliberately connecting Jesus to Moses. He's deliberately showing that. This story, it's not just simply here to show you that Jesus has certain powers. This story is not here to simply compare and contrast Jesus' reaction to needy people with the disciples' reaction to needy people. It's actually here to tell us something of the identity of Jesus. He's this Moses-like figure. But here's where it gets interesting. Jesus is not simply portrayed like Moses. He's portrayed as much, much greater Because in Exodus 16, that Bible passage that we read uh, at the start, uh, did you notice who it was that actually feeds Israel? Because it's not Moses. Moses is not the one that feeds them the bread. That's actually God. Moses does very little, actually. He just kind of says, this is what God will do. Uh, You don't have to flick back into Exodus, but just let me read you uh, verse 4 from Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And that's what he does. And he provides them bread. And then we get verse 15. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. It's not Moses at all that gives them the bread. It's actually God. Moses actually does very little in the Exodus account apart from say, this is what God is actually going to do. Now take what Moses does uh, in that account and compare it to what Jesus does with the feeding of the 5,000. Because Jesus, unlike Moses, Jesus is not standing on the sidelines saying God will feed you and then kind of sitting back and waiting for God to put bread uh, on the ground. Jesus is actually the one pictured as doing it. Look at verse 18. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples to the people. Jesus is not on the sidelines like Moses saying, God will feed you. Jesus is actually the one that Matthew pictures is actually doing it. The story is showing uh, Jesus like Moses, but actually much, much greater. He's the ultimate Moses. He kind of acts as if he's God. And the same thing is actually happening in the very next story, the walking on the water. So one of the other really famous things that Moses did, of course, uh, was part the Red Sea so that he and the Israelites might walk through. But again, it's not Moses that parts the sea. Moses stands there with his staff while God actually blows the water back. And in this second story in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, seemingly under his own power, just walks out over the water and actually transfers that power to Peter so that he can do it. Jesus is acting like he's God himself. And the disciples, if you notice in that passage, they end up calling him the Son of God and worshipping him. He's way bigger, he's way better than Moses. Both these stories are actually saying something about who Jesus is. He's like Moses, but way greater. And once you see that, I think once you see that these stories are about Jesus as the greater Moses, that's the thing that makes verse 16 kind of interesting. 
because the disciples have come to Jesus and they say, send the crowd away. And Jesus, the ultimate Moses, replies with these words in verse 16. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Why does the true and ultimate Moses say, you guys give them something to eat? He's the true and ultimate Moses. This is Jesus with God's power. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. He created the entire universe from nothing. He certainly can create bread from nothing. It's not like he needs their help. He doesn't need their food as some sort of starter pack for his miracle. I think the reason why Jesus says, you give them something to eat, actually has nothing to do with Jesus. I think it has everything to do with the disciples. The disciples, they've clearly seen the need of the crowd. 5,000 people who need food, but they are totally focused on what little resources they have, rather than looking into Jesus, the true and ultimate Moses, to feed the people. This is Jesus teaching them that what little they have can actually be used to great effect when given to and used by God. But the disciples, they are totally focused on what little resources they have, rather than focusing on Jesus. Which is really easy to do, actually. It's very easy to look at what little resources you have rather than looking to Jesus. Have you got unsaved friends? Unsaved family? If you've got unsaved friends at university or on your street that you want to see come to faith in Jesus, I think you probably lack, you you have that sense that you lack the power to actually reach into their hearts and minds and actually change what they believe probably sense that you lack the ability to answer all of their questions that they have about Jesus. You sense that you can't reach into their heart and change it and have them cross from death to life. That's out of your ability. Only God can do that. And that can leave you feeling like Kevin Carter in Sudan. You can see the need, but you can feel radically under-resourced and powerless to actually do something about it. We've got a few parents here tonight. If you're a parent, you probably know what it feels like to feel like you're radically kind of ill-equipped to parent your kids in consistent and godly manners, to entrust that they grow up to love the Lord Jesus. At least that's how my wife and I feel. You can feel like the disciples, that you just don't have enough resources to actually meet the need, the massive task that you see. If you're a hub group leader, or leading a one-to-one. You probably know what it feels like to to work really hard at uni uh, and then to feel like you just don't have enough time to prep for your one-to-one or for your Bible study. You probably feel like you don't have the power to actually shape uh, people's lives to grow and mature. I think actually any thoughtful, humble Christian knows what it's like at some point, at some point, to feel like, All they have to offer God is underwhelmingly small in the light of the overwhelming need of the world that actually doesn't know God and doesn't want to know. I think most thoughtful and humble Christians will feel like that at some point. But one of the things I love about this passage is Jesus doesn't try to talk you out of that perception. Notice that he doesn't try to convince the disciples that what they actually have is enough for the task. When the disciples come to him and kind of embarrassingly say, 
actually, we're just completely ill-equipped, Jesus. We just have a couple of buns and a few fish. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to them, guys, don't be so negative. Surround yourself with positive people who will talk encouragingly about you and your skill set and your resources. Don't undersell your potential. You can do it. Trust yourself. Just start handing out bread. Take a step towards a better you and reach your full potential as someone who can feed the needy. He says nothing like that because he knows that they actually can't. And he wants them to know they can't. That's why he says to them, you do it. So that they sense they actually can't. When the disciples come to him feeling like what they have is absolutely nowhere close to meeting the needs of the crowd, what does Jesus say to them instead? It's not positive thinking. What does he say? Bring them to me. Isn't that what every Christian who feels the lack of their personal resources needs to hear? Bring what little you have. Bring what little you have to me. Every Christian who senses their own lack of resources and power to lead an impactful Christian life to the glory of God needs to see Jesus as the true and greater and ultimate Moses who takes what little his disciples have and feeds 5,000. I want to give you a practical example of what that might look like. The example was not drinking. Uh, you know, working as a pastor, in many ways, is actually no different to working any other job or being a student. Some weeks, you do it, everything goes really well, Bible study's great, sermon comes together, pastoral care goes off, you feel like that's a great week. Other weeks are actually just are terrible and nothing works. Uh, this week, for me, was, I think, probably one of the most difficult, uh, one of the most challenging and one of the most time-poor and stressful weeks I've ever had. Uh, Almost everything that could have gone wrong this week feels like it did. I had nowhere near enough time to prepare everything. I had a cluster of extra commitments kind of come up, some at last minute. I had a few days of really poor health. We had family leaving as missionaries to go overseas and our kids have been crying because they're not going to see their cousins or their auntie and uncle for years. The pressure was really mounting this week as nothing I seemed to do could kind of gain traction. And by Wednesday, my slowly imploding week started to become obvious to my wife. And so she started saying things like, are you okay? Do you need help? What can I do? Because she could see the toll of the week. She could see the stress starting to be written on my face. On top of that, this sermon for Sunday would just refuse to come together. You know when you're writing an assignment and you just kind of, like your, your hands are ready to push buttons and you look at the screen but nothing kind of comes out? Or then you write something and it's rubbish and so you delete it but the, you know, your assignment is getting close to the deadline. And so you start, you know, what happens? You start to panic. And that just makes everything worse. Because your mind is jumping all over the place. You're running out of time, so you try to write faster. So you write really fast, then you look at the screen. And the screen's half read because every second word has been mistyped. So you have to go back and, you know, it's got that little red line under it. And so you right-click and it gives you the correct spelling. You click that and you spend five minutes going through the paragraph because you've written too fast. And then you realise your paragraph's rubbish anyway, so you delete it and you're back to a blank screen. 
but the clock is ticking and the pressure is mounting. That is what writing this sermon was like. It actually got to the stage where later in the week I just said to Vicky, I've had it with this week. I just want this week done. I feel like phoning Jeff and asking if he could preach for me because it's actually just all too hard. Uh, but Jeff and I had already organised that I was filling in for him tonight, so my kind of phone-a-friend, get-out-of-jail-free card was just not there. So I just kept working, but I'm running out of time, and now, you know, it's Friday night, and I'm supposed to be running Bible study with the students from my uh, congregation, and three students at that night say to me, Mike, you're looking really tired. And then on Saturday, I've got a bunch of extra commitments, and I just can't get to the sermon. And so I'm out of time, the sermon has to be done, and so I start praying the prayer of the desperate preacher. I start praying, God, you control all things. You've allowed me to have this week. You control all things. So I pray that you know that I don't have the time or the mental or the spiritual resources this week to do what I would love to do with this sermon. So I pray that you will take what little I can do and use it to effect. I'm slightly embarrassed to say I didn't see the irony of that. It actually took me a little while to see the irony of the guy struggling to write the sermon, feeling like he doesn't have the time and the mental and the spiritual resources this week to do a good enough job of it, when the passage he's preaching on is about the disciples who feel like they don't have enough resources to meet the need of the crowd. I know it's hard to imagine I didn't see that, but that's what stress does. It blinds you. It takes away your ability to kind of think. But isn't that just the kind of thing that God would end up doing? That he would arrange for me to have probably one of the most challenging and time-poor weeks of my ministry so that I feel like the sermon that I'm writing is just so lacking in so many ways that I'm just forced to pray, God, what little I have managed to do, please use and do something with. I want to say to you guys what I said to my own congregation this morning at this point. Please don't think, oh boy, it's not going to be long before my pastor burns out and we're on the hunt for another one. This is not a normal week and St. Matthew's takes very good care of their pastoral staff. This was not a normal week. Um, and look, if, if you're a student or you're a parent or you work, you have weeks like this too, don't you? Where nothing works. I'm telling you about my week because at some point that's what every one of us as Christians feels like about our own ability to lead impactful, Christian, fruitful lives to God's glory. In the face of the overwhelming neediness of our homes, our streets, our universities, our city, our country, our world that doesn't know God and in many ways doesn't want to know God, I think every one of us eventually knows what it feels like to sense that we lack the resources to be able to impact our world and live fruitful lives for God at some point. At some point, I think we all know what it feels like to be Kevin Carter in the sedan and see the need and feel that you just don't have enough to actually make a difference. And so every one of us, I think, needs to hear Jesus say to his disciples who feel the same lack of resources, it's okay, bring what little you have to me. And every one of us needs to see Jesus, the ultimate Moses, take what little they had and feed 5,000. 
So let me make it really practical. What does it actually look like to bring what little you have to Jesus? Well, let's take three of those examples that we used earlier. If you've got unsaved friends or unsaved family that you desperately want to see come to faith in Jesus, there will be times where you feel like you just don't have the resources to make that happen. But I think to bring what little you do have and give it to Jesus looks like this. It looks like continuing to strive to live a life that makes the gospel attractive, to continue falteringly trying to answer their questions on why you live that way. And if you do that, who knows what God will do with your fish and your loaves. If you're a parent, there will be times, I think, where you feel radically ill-equipped to parent your kids in godly and consistent ways, that they might grow up to love Jesus. But as you try to model the gospel in your life at home, as you try to let your parenting of your kids be shaped by the gospel, well, who knows what God will do with what little fish and loaves you manage to get. If you're one of the hub group leaders here, or if you lead a one-to-one Bible study, uh, there will be times where actually your hub group Bible study just doesn't work, and it didn't go well. There'll be times where actually you're faced with some sort of pastoral crisis of a friend or someone in your group that actually you just don't know what to do. There'll be times where you feel powerless to lead people away from destructive sin in their life. But as you bring what little Jesus has given you, back to him as you open uh, the word with people every week and faithfully try and apply that week in, week out. Who knows what God will do with your little loaves and fish? Every Christian in this room, whether you are young, whether you're old, whether you are mature, whether you are immature, whether you're a pastor, a Bible college lecturer, a missionary in the future, at some point, Every one of us, I think, feels the reality of the lack of resources that we have to lead impactful Christian lives to God's glory in the overwhelming neediness of a world that doesn't know him and doesn't want to know. Which is why every Christian also needs to see Jesus as the ultimate Moses. The one who says to his followers who are focused on the smallness of their resources, bring what little you have to me. Amen.